For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. I'm here with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer from Long Form. Hey. Gentlemen. Hey, guys. Hey, welcome home, Max. Hey, thanks a lot. Where have you been, Max? I went to Boston this weekend to... Uh, wish my grandmother a hundredth birthday a happy hundredth birthday she turned a hundred on saturday and like 80 people from my family came all over the country and we surprised her and she really likes gambling so we had a casino night she played roulette it was awesome how do you surprise someone who's 100 she's seen it all she's yeah she was pretty surprised she was pretty surprised she was kind of shocked and there was a lot of like we can't surprise her too much or she might have a heart attack (laughs) so there was like a pre-surprise like there's many more people here than you know we just we whispered that in her ear right before she walked into the room we should get her on the podcast sounds like let's call her (laughs) evan who do you talk to this week i talked to amy wallace who is an la-based writer for gq for wired uh she's written for a bunch of places she's a wonderful writer and she in my opinion, is the kind of writer where you read her work and then you think she would be really fun to talk to, and actually she was. She's really interesting. She has a great perspective on this kind of work. That's great, because I feel like my experience so often is just I'm totally let down by the guests. Yeah, we won't say which ones. Our sponsor this week is Warby Parker. It's a new concept in eyewear, and it's one that I am currently wearing on my face uh, quite happily. Thank you, Warby Parker. You guys, we have a second sponsor. It's Tiny Letter. It's a simple, elegant way to send an email newsletter. Done by the good people at MailChimp. We thank them for their sponsorship. Here is Evan and Amy Wallace. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in here. You're, I was going to catch you in L.A., but then it turned out you were going to be in New York anyway. So. Yes, I'm here so we can do the sound booth thing. Yeah, that's right. It wouldn't have been the same, uh, <laughs> the same quality, the same intimacy Indeed. if we'd done it uh, out in L.A. Um, you've been based in L.A. for a long time. Do you, do you find yourself pulled back to New York a lot, or are you sort of like a happy sort of satellite out there? Um, both. I'm a happy satellite, and I come back a lot. Uh-huh. But but I love New York. I used to live here, and man, the past couple of days have just been reminding me why I loved it. You know, <laughs> it, I've had a nice time here remembering what it was like to live here. I lived here right, not right out of college, but a year out of college. I my first job out of college was working as a, an assistant to a columnist at the New York Times and the Washington Bureau. 
uh, James Rustin. How did you get that job? I was an intern for Newsweek for two summers, um, once in Washington, D.C., and once in San Francisco. And while I was an intern in Washington, D.C., I met a guy playing softball. He was on the New York Times team, and I was on the Newsweek team. And he said, I have this amazing job. I work for this columnist at the New York Times. I'm like right out of college, and I work at the New York Times for a columnist, for like the big dog columnist. And I said, how do you get that job? And he said, well, he has this tradition where he, he's modeled it on the Supreme Court clerkships, and he has one-year jobs for people right out of college. And instead of having an amazing executive assistant who runs his life with with efficiency, he hires a college student, basically somebody who's just graduated from college, and you work for him for a year and help him with his columns and write for the times when you can. And and I was like, well, damn, where do I sign up for that? And I ended up applying for it and I ended up getting it. So the first job was there and then I went up to New York after that and worked on the national desk, answering the phone, getting coffee, being a copy clerk basically so once you were in then you kind of well, then i then i came, around. came up here to new york and, and that's when i lived here uh-huh. yeah i don't know if you want me to give the the sort of chronology of how i became a magazine writer but actually i want to yeah. i, I kind of want to save that just uh, for just a second because i wanted to s- step back the thing i actually wanted to start off asking you about um which maybe will get us into some of the stuff was just that looking over all of the things you've written about mm-hmm. they're is an incredibly wide range. And I think it's rare for someone to go really deep into, say, business reporting and also go really deep into, say, Hollywood profiles Mm -hmm. and then into science writing. And I guess I wanted to find out if that felt like a natural evolution over your career. I follow what I'm interested in. I'm a generalist. Or if you feel like you have been sort of very specific in the way you've wanted to develop your career, the way you've wanted to, you know, go after certain subjects or educate yourself in certain areas or something like that. It's definitely the former. I'm I'm definitely a ger- gener- generalist journalist, um, and at times self-critically, like should I be more of a should I focus more at one or the other? Um, I. You know, I was a metro reporter for a long time. I covered riots and fires and earthquakes. Um, I covered prisons when I was in Atlanta. We'll get to all of that, but but I covered death row for a while and executions. I uh, I for a long time I took jobs or gravitated towards assignments that I thought would teach me something. When I was really younger and learning, and I need to learn how to seek out court documents. I need to learn how to cover a trial. Mm-hmm. This will be good. I'll do it. I don't care. I'll, I'll learn how to do that that skill. Later, I I have just gravitated to what interests me. The, the, the only place that that's a little, not a completely simple explanation is that celebrity profiles, in part, I do because I learned how to do them when I was a newspaper reporter at the LA Times I thought if I was going to write about the movie industry, I needed to understand celebrity, mm-hmm. not, and and I was not averse to doing them. Sometimes people think, "Oh, they're just silly celebrity profiles." I thought, well, if I'm going to understand how Hollywood works, I need to get up close to some of this A-list stuff. Um, so I developed the skill, and as a, f- a person who f- pieces together a career financially, 
it's it's a if you can do that, it's one of the tools in your toolbox, mm -hmm. and it allows you to make a living. They're fairly quick hit stories, not always. Um, I try to do a lot of secondary interviews, um, but but some you know I just had a piece about Justin Timberlake in GQ, and it, it's mostly just an interview with Justin Timberlake. Right. You know, it's me and him, and and so that can be time consuming to prepare for and time consuming to make happen. But it's almost like shooting a picture. Like once you've got it in the, once you got the interview in the can, you got to write it. But you're not out doing a huge amount more research. Um, and as a, I mean, advice to freelancers: if you can piece together a career where you do both ambitious stuff that feeds your soul and is nutritious, and you feel like you're you're doing something important and raising an important issue or uncovering an important story. But also, if you only did that, um, it would be hard to eat mm -hmm. because those stories can take a year or they can take three years. Um, so, And especially as a freelancer, yes, that's, exactly. that money's not coming till the end or actually well beyond the end of exactly. that story. So, um, so I'm not saying I'm not interested in celebrity profiles. I am. And I, I'm constantly interested in the machinery around famous people and how they deal with fame. I... I, I I'm not a snob at all about high, high culture, low culture. I think it's it's part of what makes our country something that people are definitely interested in. I'm interested in it too, but um, but that I would admit that partly I do that for economic reasons as well, huh. not just my interest. But I've you're right. I mean, I've written about anti-vaccine movement. I've written about I love true crime. I will write. I mean, I've written a lot of um, murder stories. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think the thing that unites all of them, and generally I turn any story that I'm working on, whether it's a celebrity profile or a biologist who murdered a bunch of people or, or Justin Timberlake, is there's a, it's almost tried to say, but there's a humanity to each of these people and figuring out what's making them tick in the moment or in general is really interesting to me. So in a way, that's my sweet spot and um, that's what i tend to gravitate towards the irony might be that it's sometimes more difficult to find the humanity in the celebrity than it is in the like person on death row <laughs> well and often that's because you were only getting a, right. a very little bit of time right, with you've, them. Got, you've got 10 minutes to find the humanity in this uh world-renowned person but something you just said about uh about you decided to develop that skill when it uh -huh. comes to doing those kind of profiles. How did you, how do you do that? How do you, how do you sort of say like, I'm going to take, try to bring my approach to this thing that I've never done before or profiling someone who maybe has been profiled a hundred times and maybe I don't get much time with. Right. I mean, I push for as much time as possible. Mm -hmm. I actually, I think the less time you have, the less you have to say always. I mean, but but, I mean, the thing that I say, I've talked to a lot of, you know, journalism classes, and the thing that I always say, sometimes young people think, um, who want to be celebrity journalists because it seems like it would be so much fun and so glamorous, and they think that the, if you put them, if you sat them down with a celebrity right now, what they would think the right approach would be is to say, I'm such a fan of yours, that that would be the end, that that would be the, the convincing way of warming somebody up. And what... I often say is the most flattering thing you can do to somebody, whether they are a music star or a scientist or whoever you're interviewing, a lawyer, 
is to have done your homework, which sounds kind of tedious, but when I sit down with somebody, I have generally read everything they've written if they're writers, I've listened to every piece of music if they're musicians, I've read everything that's ever been written about them. Um, and what happens there is you don't announce that in mm -hmm. the, in the uh, interview, but very early on something comes up where they make a reference to something and you say, oh, well, wasn't that when you were, you know, in Thailand that time with the, you know, the, the Buddha or whatever? And they look at you and they go, oh, okay, this is interesting. And sometimes that happens more than other times. But if you've really immersed yourself in the person, um, and I guess what I'm saying is I, I didn't know to do that in the beginning. <laughs> I just, uh -huh. I just thought it'd be a good idea to prepare, you know, like we all do for interviews. But the more I do it, the more I'm convinced that that is really the way into somebody, even somebody who is very tired of talking about themselves, is very guarded um, because they're sick of reading about themselves. Movie stars sometimes are just tired of it. And they, and they frankly, they want to do their acting. They don't want to talk about doing their acting. So, and I have some sympathy for that. I get it. Um, but, you know, it's so that that process, I think, is really. And the other thing that I do I've, that I've talked about it before is when I can, I try to do secondary interviews before I reach the primary person. Mm, so, so reporting around. them. Yeah. So and for like when I profiled Gary Shandling, the comedian, partly because the interview kept getting delayed, I had talked to like. 30 people about him. And I could say, not just as a name dropping technique, but I could say, well, you know, Robert Downey said that you blah, blah, blah. And, and you know, I could, I could sort of provoke an answer by saying something that was said by somebody that he actually knows and somebody he's fond of or respects or, or he's actually interested in hearing what Robert Downey had to say about him. He right. wants to know. So, that that I've stumbled on some sort of by accident sometimes, um, but you know basically by my deadline approaching, my realizing I have to do all these interviews and I would I have to interview the subject, but okay, I'll do these other interviews first. But that often helps in the interview itself. That Gary Shandling profile was is one of the most interesting to me. I feel like I that was one. I think I had I had read your stuff before, mm -hmm. but I'm I'm a I admit I'm not much, I don't like celebrity profiles in mm -hmm. general. I don't like reading them, but then I'll, I'll read one and then I'll like peg someone as, okay, now I will read this person's, all of their celebrity profiles. And actually we've had on Chris Heath is another one mm -hmm. that's that way. And Nancy Joe Sales is another one that, that, that yeah. is that way that I feel like, okay, this is going to be, and it's something in the more, to me, a more almost like anthropological approach yeah. uh, to who these people are. And I feel like the Shandling one was kind of like that. Like he's such a strange uh, man, but also like he's this sort of like guru yeah. that all of these other people kind of come to is like the, he's the guru of comedy, which I never would have thought just kind of like seeing some of his comedy. Yeah. No, he, uh, well, I found that out before I d did the profile. And so I realized that that was going to be a theme. Um, he didn't tell me, I just was hearing it that people, um, there are a couple of guys in Hollywood that people use to, they, they screen their movies before them and they they could take their feedback and they need that feedback and I thought it was interesting that he was that guy for funny people mm -hmm. um and I mean that was a really I mean he and I've talked about that profile a lot since really is that is really an example of a profile that we made together I mean 
maybe every profile gets made, you know, everybody has to participate and we're all doing our jobs. But he, I went to his house for the first, what I thought was going to be the only interview. And he, the, the peg for the story was that he was appearing in Iron Man 2, I believe. And he had been missing from action for five years. And I, I said, okay, so just one basic question is, how, why did you decide that Iron Man 2 is the project that was going to bring you back in front of the world's you know, eyes? Right, of all, of all the things. Yeah, of all the things. <laughs> and this is actually described in the story because he started to talk and he talked for an hour. <laughs> and he never answered the question. And he talked about, and we, I list all the things that he talked about, <laughs> the love of a good woman, you know, God. The, you know, it, it went on and on and on from the mundane to the profound. But I, because I'm used to managing, part of the, the stress of a celebrity profile is you know you only have a certain amount of time and you have to manage that time. you got to get through all your stuff. And I, if you'd seen the body language between us, I was leaning farther and farther forward as he kept talking because I was, I was thinking, if he takes an hour to answer this question, I'm never going to get through <laughs> these 75,000 other questions that I've brought that I meticulously wrote down. And so I'm leaning, leaning, leaning towards him, and I'm starting to touch his like arm and saying, I'm saying, Gary, Gary, you have to answer the question, why Iron Man 2? And he was just loving it, and he was just riffing and riffing. And finally he said, you know, you can come back. And at that point I realized I was experiencing what it is to be with Gary Shandling, uh -huh. and if I could come back, I was going to relax. And I literally just leaned back in my chair and let it roll over me, <laughs> the Gary Shandling of it all. And he, he made good on that. Like we, we spent a lot of time together. And I then had the very satisfying experience of feeling like I actually did, to the extent one person can really understand another, I, I really did feel like I understood him mm -hmm. um, and, could, and could help you understand him, which is very satisfying. Um, that's part of why I like writing profiles when you can really achieve that. Hey, this is Evan. I'm just pausing the interview for one moment. Uh, regular listeners will know that we do this sometimes to talk about our sponsors, and I don't usually do it. It usually makes Max do it because he's better at doing it. But in this particular case, uh, I actually really like the sponsor, which is Warby Parker. Uh, I wear Warby Parker glasses. I also have a pair of sunglasses. And the reason is because when you're a glasses wearer and you want to go try to buy a pair of glasses that you think looks cool, you go into one of these designer eyewear stores and then it costs like $600 when you get to the register and it seems sort of ridiculous. And Warby Parker is kind of the solution to that in that you can buy a pair of cool glasses and they cost $95. Uh, they will send you a bunch that you can try on and then you find the ones you like and you send it back. And on top of that, when you buy one, they ship a pair to someone in the world who needs a pair of glasses, which uh, is pretty cool. So uh, if you want to check them out, there's a code, long form, that if you put it in and check out, they will give you expedited shipping. And we really appreciate their sponsorship this week. And now back to myself talking to Amy Wallace. There, there has to be something in, in that. I mean, it has to be on the part of the subject, too, because you're dealing with a type of journalism that's often so transactional, you know, Mm -hmm. Movie's coming out. I got five questions about the movie. What was it like to work with Robert Downey Jr.? And it's just kind of like they're just going to drone out their answers as opposed to he has to make a decision. All right, 
I'm gonna I'm comfortable being myself or I'm I'm going to give this person more than mm-hmm. than I normally would. Mm-hmm. It seems like you have to kind of like make that happen or else you're stuck with the same profile that everyone else has written. Well, and and that was a really good example of what made him do that was that he saw that I had really done, I mean, it wasn't like I waved a flag saying I did all my homework, but there was an an interaction early on where I saw a photograph in his kitchen and I said, is that, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but Thich Nhat Hanh, who's this monk um, and meditation teacher that I had read that he worked with. And he, it wasn't, and the picture wasn't, but he, I, I don't, I think, I, the, it's my memory, but he kind of looked at me like, huh, you've gone there. Right. And it set things off on a, a good footing. You know, he thought, he felt taken seriously. So that, that's sort of the takeaway is you don't have to flatter these people. Take them seriously. Everybody yeah. wants to be taken seriously. Nobel Prize winners want to be taken seriously. I mean, but their own spouses are sick of hearing them talk. But when you, <laughs> when we come in, you know, we're like, that's so interesting. And tell me more about that. And why do you make that choice? And why didn't you make that choice? And it's it, fundamentally, not all interviews are flattering. But, but the fact that we're coming in and saying, I really want to understand you um, in a profile situation, I think people depending on the situation, people are flattered by that without you having to praise them. Yeah. Well, to go, to go from that to, I feel like we're going from like, uh, the lightness of Gary Shandling (laughs) down, down deeper. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the most recent, I don't know if the Justin Timberlake one's the most recent or the, they kind of came out the same week. Yeah. 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 Um, the the boy who killed his neo-Nazi father. Yeah. The boy who, who killed his father. So, um, that story is also, I know because we actually tried to sign that story at the Atavist. Really? Uh, yeah, but it's one of those where we sort of kind of, we had that inkling, you know, some, uh, someone else is on this and uh, maybe we're not going to be the ones to get it. So we ended up letting it drop. But um, that's one interesting aspect of it is that it's, that's been a while. So you've been on that story. I worked on that story for more than a year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, off and on. I was doing other things as well. But, and he, you know, but his trial started last October, and we're now in November. Um, so it's been more than a year. Um, yeah, that was a really heartbreaking story. How did you sort of, uh, how did you kind of work your way into that that story? You know, that's a situation where you know I couldn't talk to the boy. Yeah. Um, he's in juvenile detention, and just to sum it up for people who haven't heard it, it's it's a ten year old boy whose father was a leader of a neo-Nazi group, the National Socialist Movement, NSM, in Southern California. And one night he got up in the middle of the night and he got dad's gun, which was always lying around loaded, and shot his dad in the head. Um, he was on trial for for murder as a juvenile. Um, and I basically entered at the trial stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that, so I could see him. I could see him reacting in the courtroom and and was there for much of the testimony and then got some of the expert testimony like on, you know, I got it transcribed and had that as well. Um, And then I got to know uh, his grandmother a little bit and did a lot of research about the National Socialist Movement and sort of why Riverside and 
that whole San Bernardino County area is such a hotbed to the extent that it is for that kind of um, belief system. Mm -hmm. A lot of it's about poverty and Mm -hmm. no options. And um, one of the important elements of reporting that story also was there was a woman, Julie Plattner, who had been following um, the father, Jeff Hall, around hoping to make a documentary of him. And she had a huge amount of footage of him. Uh-huh. And in fact, the, what drew our attention, Brendan, my editor at GQ and I, to the story was that the New York Times wrote this front page story about it yeah. because there had been a New York Times reporter following Jeff around to do a story about neo-Nazism or something. And he had been with them the day before the killing happened. But Julie was the one that had taken that reporter into that story. And there are pictures that ran in the New York Times that Julie had taken. Oh, I see. So I tracked Julie down and watched all her footage. So I saw Jeff interacting with his son, even though Jeff was dead. Um, And I saw sort of that dynamic, um, which is a rare, you know, when you're, when you pick it up at the trial stage, you know, they're missing people already. (laughs) You know, there's, there's somebody who's already gone. Um, yeah. And especially the interaction between, yeah. in this case, the killer and the victim. Yeah. Um, and we don't, there's not that much of that in the story. There's more, a descript- I mean, I, what it did show me was that I think Jeff Hall loved his kids. You know, he was, he was, uh, had, you know, questionable judgment about certain things, but he was very involved in his kids. And it was just a really complicated situation because Joseph, his son, was really damaged for a lot of reasons. And um, that was the quandary of the trial, which was what, as we say in the story, what to do with Joseph. You know, he's, because he's a juvenile, he will be out, back out among us in 10 years and when he's 23. And how do you get somebody help who's going to be back out among us, you know, Mm -hmm. um, who, who was dealt the worst of all possible hands in terms of drug abuse in utero, perhaps in terms of of probably some some sort of whether it's attention deficit or I don't know what sort of damage that happened to him uh, that he that he was struggling with in terms of being able to do well in school and so there was a lot of anger and and then you know there were guns around so there was that um, <laughs> and that was, you know that was a factor yeah Nazi meetings happening in the house and a lot of rhetoric and he'd been taken down to the border to learn how to shoot. And so he really just was dealt the worst of all hands. And do do you, so, I mean, you have a son and you, you, you know, there's ways that you could sort of like relate to the story, but do you feel like you generally keep yourself at some remove from the story? Um, You're not a huge like first person Writer I actually, in a lot of ways, I do but... go first person in that piece at one point. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny on the sort of to step back from that whole issue. You know, there are certain ways of going first person often in celebrity profiles that I've often hated, which are like, then I ordered the Caesar salad and she ordered the blah, blah, blah. I That's remember really the a... first time that I met her, Meg Ryan or whoever. A lot know. of that is just the lack of things to talk well, about. You're I just like stretching out some lunch. It often is the person <laughs> did not get very much. And so they're describing the, the argument in favor of that is, hey, they got to be with this person. So they're telling us what it's like. But often it feels like padding. That said, I have 
put myself sometimes it's the way the person is interacting with you yeah. that is interesting yeah so when justin timberlake is is telling me that uh, i don't know if we can cuss on this but, yes um, we can when he's telling me that it's really interesting that I'm interviewing him about the men of the year issue when he feels like literally a bunch of people just took a shit on my face, he has to say that to me and there has to be a con... I mean, in other words, it's not a sort of disembodied quote you can put somewhere. He's saying it to me and it feels... Wow, I've never heard Justin Timberlake say anything like that. Um... It was a great Twitter. Uh, that was a fantastic Twitter <laughs> quote to have. <laughs> I think it's yeah, easy to spread. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he was, I got him on a bad day. I mean, or a, a good day. I mean, I think he was, he chose to articulate himself that way. He was mad and he was, he wanted to tell somebody about it. But um, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it yeah. depends. But I, but I, I am briefly in the Joseph thing because I think that, I kind of had to say, like, you find yourself feeling like this when you are in the courtroom looking at this boy. Yeah. You know, and just describing it, although I'm a fan of that kind of more removed, sort of just purely observational, it felt in this case, particularly since Jim Nelson, the editor-in-chief of GQ, had urged me to make this more of a almost essay and like a discussion of the issues raised as opposed to just a -a rat-a-tat-tat crime story which I think was the right call. Um, and then when, once it had that tone, which is kind of kicked off at the end of the first section, which says, you know, it seemed simple, but it was anything but. It, the There was a voice of almost essay quality. Yeah. So then I could live in that story a little bit more. I'm not in it very much, but... And then, I mean, I guess part of what I was getting to was, does the story live with you? I mean, do you... The story just Does came out, so it's been done me? for yeah. a while. So, but do you wake up thinking about this kid, or you know, is it easy to sort of dip into that and and come out of it and move on to something lighter, or how much does it sort of like accumulate on you? That's a good question. I mean, I definitely made me. Th- I mean, it, it stuck. It sticks with me. It's a it's a story that that doesn't. You know, when you think about the elements in it, it, it's it's hard to feel anything but sadness about it. Um, I mean, I've had different experiences. I this goes back to the beginning of my career, but when I was a uh, when I covered prisons for the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Now this was uh, so. Let's get from uh, okay, the, so t- from, the from, Times from to the there. New York Times. The Washington, the person who had been the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times when I worked briefly there, when I worked for there for a year, was a man named Bill Kovitch. And he ended up leaving the New York Times and going to become the editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And with him, he took many young people who wanted to be full-time reporters and were tired of getting coffee in the hopes of someday becoming reporters. Mm -hmm. So I was one of, I think, five or six of us who went from the New York Times clerkship program down um, to Atlanta. And my first beat was covering prisons. um, And at that time, and I think to this day, Georgia... Uh, kills people in the electric chair on a regular basis. Worse with uh, they're up there with Florida. So I, the way covering executions worked was, if the murder generally was a murder that somebody was being executed for had happened in your county, the newspaper in that county had a could get a seat to witness Mm -hmm. an execution, and I was very um, sort of strident and young um, and 
female and trying to prove that I was tough and not a sissy. And so when a time came up for me to witness, I said, I'm absolutely witnessing if, if the state of Georgia is going to kill people, I think the Atlanta Journal-Constitution should show people what that looks like. So my, my boss, um, the managing editor, assistant managing editor for Metro at that point said, who was a really tough guy, Sonny Rawls, um, he said, I wouldn't do, kid, I wouldn't, why, what are you doing that for? And I was like, because we cover this and we should show it. And he said, I don't want that memory in my mind. I don't want, I don't, you don't need to do this. And I was like, no, 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 I'm going to do this. I'm doing it. So I watched Timothy McCorkadale be, be electrocuted. And I wrote a huge story about how it works and how the chair, first there's a surge of 2,000 volts, and then there's another one 10 seconds later. And I, I, we, we went to town. We, mm-hmm. if, you're gonna, if we're going to do this as a society, that's fine. Let's just look at what it looks like and what you actually do. Um, and a couple of weeks after I watched it, I had a really weird um, dream that... I've never had, I don't think I've ever had a dream like this where everything in the dream was red and it, the, the visuals were just people I loved looking at me in the face and turning away from me, like shaking their heads, like, mm, like, and it was a very upsetting dream. And I woke up thinking, what the hell was that? And at least my analysis of that dream, <laughs> you can, you can be the judge doctor, but was Ultimately, that I think that's what I was imagining it felt like to be on death row, that people turn away from you. They say you are the monster. You know, you, you aren't just a person who made a mistake. You are the, you are the other. And we're, we, we excommunicate you from society and we kill you too. And that's how my brain sort of processed that experience. Um, while in the moment, I was very you know, taking notes and yeah, making sure and the leather strap the was reporter. on the ankle and then the, the blindfold went on the da-da-da and I was all in the, you know, in the details of reporting my job. But stories do have an impact That's on That you. one's obviously stuck with you. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. been a while. I mean, when, what year was that? That was 1988, maybe. Did you, um, did you ever witness another execution? No, that's the only one I witnessed. One was plenty. And so how did you, you were covering prisons in Atlanta, and then how did you sort of move on from there? Did you go straight to LA Times from there? I went straight to the LA Times. Well, Bill Kovach, who we'd all followed um, to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, um, quit. This is, this is the short version. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Sounds we, like a more interesting story. Yeah, there's a long story there. And actually, it's a public record. It's, I mean, he was feeling pressure from the Cox sisters who owned the paper. Mm-hmm. And the, the paper ended up winning a Pulitzer for a series on redlining but and had, was doing great work. But in any case, suddenly the person we'd followed was no longer running the paper. Mm-hmm. And... So Unfortunately, I, they succeeded in turning the paper into what it is today. Well, and that was, we thought, clearly about to happen. And so a bunch of us um, headed for the exits. And mm-hmm. I, as it happened, I'd been covering a congressional race at that point, and I, the election had just happened, and I was already going to California for a vacation. And I quickly sent my resume to the Los Angeles Times, the San Jose Mercury, there might have been another one, and... I interviewed while I was on vacation and I ended up, it took a while, but I ended up getting a job at the LA times and I worked there for a long time. I was a, I was a reporter there for 11, 11 years. 
Yeah. And how did you make the transition from being a newspaper reporter? I mean, you mentioned like the frustrations of having to sort of learn things on deadline, but how did you, what prompted the decision to sort of make the jump? Did you start doing, so you did some magazine pieces while you were still on I did. Well, at that point, the Los Angeles Times had a magazine, which it no longer does. And there was a great editor there, Kit Rackless, who I worked with on several magazine pieces. And I, I, then Kit ended up leaving and going to be the editor-in-chief of Los Angeles Magazine, and I followed him and became a full-time magazine writer then. And mm-hmm. really, sort of, my education was really full-time at that point. Um, the thing that I felt was, you know, there's so much about newspaper reporting, and I admire it still, and I still subscribe, and I'm, a, you know, an advocate, and, and I'm sad about what's happening to a lot of newspapers. But it, for for me, I felt like you could say more in a magazine, and I don't just mean space wise. I mean some of these things we've been discussing, you know, uh, point of view change, or including yourself when appropriate, mm-hmm. or or stepping back. There was an amazing story that that um, that another writer at L, at LA Magazine who had come with me from the LA Times, and he and I used to talk about it all the time, which was a Ron Susskind piece in the New York Times Magazine, where he profiled the press secretary for President Bush, and he caught her at sort of a time when she was making a huge transition, and during the reporting, she steps down, and she decides to go back to her life in Texas, I think. And he's in the lead. The reporter is in the lead, and he's describing how awkward it is to be in the house, and and how there's these awkward silences as he waits for her to come downstairs and he's talking to the husband. I'm not doing it justice at all. But we would talk about this story. Like We'll put it in the reference to it in the show it notes. It's fascinating how he he's telling us so much more by describing that than if he just quoted what they said and told us what their house looked like. He's explaining the awkwardness of this situation, this moment she finds herself in and that her family finds themselves in. And I mean, if we talked about that story for 10 minutes, we've talked about it for 500 minutes. Like we just were, it it was what we were trying to learn to do. And the the person I was talking with for 500 minutes was Jesse Katz, who's a great, great magazine writer. And, but we were new at it. And we were fascinated by that idea that you could actually say more of the truth when you acknowledged, and this was the key thing, when you acknowledge what you didn't know. Mm. In the story, when you acknowledge when you were confused or when you acknowledged that, that you couldn't get to the bottom of it or that you were, t- there's a, a great Dave Gardetta story uh, um, called Hooking Up in which he tries to explore the youth culture of what is hooking up. And at one point in the story, he says, he basically says, I don't know what hooking up means. <laughs> I mean, he says it much more eloquently than that, but he says to some people hooking up is this, some people hooking up is that. And it's a, both a hilarious paragraph, but it actually says more about what hooking up, the role <laughs> that that phrase plays in the culture than if you actually nailed down a definition. <laughs> right. And that really interested me. And I felt like magazine writing lit that happen uh two sort of business related things you worked for portfolio magazine which i wanted to touch on just a little bit because mm-hmm. that seems like uh just an interesting experience and you also wrote a column for the new york times which yes. was about innovation but the portfolio thing were you a staff writer at portfolio i was yeah and did it feel like you were like riding a gold-plated train to 
to paradise and then it and then it like went off a cliff or like what I'm interested in sort of the experience of being inside of something like that that sort of like launches out of nowhere well it definitely had a lot of resources yeah I mean, that I mean it was um, it was definitely a well-funded entity um, and a beautiful magazine it looked fantastic um I mean, I wasn't actually inside the belly of the beast because I was always in Los Angeles and right. I was always based out out on the left coast. But um, it, I wouldn't say that it felt fantastic and then suddenly we went off a cliff. Um, I think everybody knew that things were not working as they should have. Mm-hmm. Um, the basic thing about Portfolio was it was a very high-end business magazine that was launched at a time when everybody was cutting back on their high-end advertising. That's the short version of why it went down. Um, but it was also a, a business magazine that was trying to figure out what it was. And that was difficult for a lot of people who were working there. Mm-hmm. And in terms of, I mean, you've been now, I guess, a freelancer really for since then. And you were sort of, seems like prior to then. And I think a lot of people would look now, especially younger people and say, uh, if you're going to try to raise a family, that being a freelancer is either incredibly difficult or untenable. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if your sort of approach to it is that you value your freedom a certain amount and your and and the other aspects of life, or if you're sort of like, no, actually, I, I've figured out how to piece together the income I need to like live the life I want to live. You know what I mean? I wish it were the latter. Yes, I've figured <laughs> it out, everyone. It's all, I'll just give you my secrets. Um, well, let me say this. I've been, I mean, I have several jobs right now. I work half-time at Los Angeles Magazine. I'm editor-at-large, which, mm-hmm. as far as I'm concerned, is the best title I will ever have. <laughs> um, and I love all the people there. And the great thing about that is that it gives me, in addition to working with great editors, Mary Melton, the editor-in-chief, is fantastic. Um, it gives me a community. And I, I'm not a person who's very happy when I'm just sitting in my house. Mm. Um um, sometimes I like sitting in my house, but but to not have any sort of place to get up and go to is not good for my psyche, I've found. So I have that, and I am a correspondent for GQ, so I owe them a certain number of words a year. And then I freelance from there. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking about before we started recording, I've also helped an executive at Pixar, Ed Catmull, write a book, which is going to come out in April. So again, I guess that fits into the generalist sort of... Lot, trying to have lots of tools in my toolbox. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important if you want to feed yourself and your family. Um, I've been very fortunate I mean, in terms of having opportunities. But, you know, for example, the New York Times um, prototype column, it was called, um, about innovation. How that occurred was when I was at Portfolio, um, an editor at the Sunday New York Times business section had approached me about possibly working there and that didn't work out but we had started this dialogue and so when portfolio closed and I had a story that was supposed to appear in I think it was the June maybe July issue that was now not going to be printed Mm -hmm. I had this finished very long story I went straight to him and said will you run this I have a baby that has no home and it needs to run quickly like I needed it it was going to become, if I went to another national magazine, first of all, they'd be like, whatever, we didn't assign this. But also, it needed to be birthed. Mm-hmm. And he ran it. He he opened up much of um, 
the section for it on a Sunday. And, and I ended up doing a couple of more freelance pieces for him. And then he asked me if I wanted to do this column. So, I mean, again, one of the things that I say to young people about um, freelancing is don't underestimate how valuable it is to make your deadline, be professional and accurate, do what you say you're going to do, and play well with others. Some of those things are very boring sounding, like, oh, well, that's not brilliant. I want to be brilliant. Well, I want to be brilliant too. But the way you make a career is you get the job done, and you do it when you said you were going to do it, and you you're intellectually honest and you do anything to make the story good. And when you do that, people want to work with you again, even if it's been hard, you mm -hmm. know? Um, now, what does that mean for your life? I mean, the number of jobs I just described to you, I don't recommend it. Yeah. It, 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 it was too many at one point. And now the book is finished and it's going to be out in April. Um, Creativity Inc. is what it's called, and it's going to be great. And it's uh, it was Ed's, you know, it's his, sort of his life's work and how how Pixar manages its creative culture. Um, it's cool, but but when I was doing that and several other things at once, I took I took a six month book leave, but you know, frankly, couldn't afford to take much more than that. And you know that the 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 upside is that. I have freedom so I can I can work when I decide to, mm -hmm. as opposed to you have to be at your desk from nine to five. Um, but it does mean that I ended up working, you know, a lot of time, you know, weekends and nights and things like that. Um, and that's still true to a certain degree, even with the book being done. You know, that is the freelancer life. If it's due on Monday, you don't get to take the weekend off. You're going to be writing it on Saturday and Sunday. Um, but as you say, it comes with freedom. You just have, it's, it's a juggling act to a certain degree. Yeah. Well, the last thing, this is so, somewhat related, but not, not exactly that I, I was going to ask you about earlier, but I just wanted to get it in um, and then I'll let you go. Um, was you wrote this story about Amy Bishop, who was the professor who was, mm -hmm. uh, who ended up killing a number of her colleagues uh, in, a, in a shooting rampage basically for Wired Magazine, which I love that story. It's such a, Really, really fantastic story. Mm. I think it's one of the best Wired stories of ever. Yeah, um, thank you. And I know where I know where you're headed. But is. one thing that really interested me was <laughs> I that I interviewed Patrick Ryden Keefe, uh -huh. who subsequently wrote a story for the New Yorker uh -huh. about Amy Bishop. And you you were very gracious about it. I felt like people asked you obviously about it, or it came up. And I think you sort of said like. Yeah, it's a nice, it was a great piece, and here's my piece, and I can't remember mm -hmm. exactly what you said mm -hmm. on Twitter, and to go back and look it up, but... Mm -hmm. I just, people tweeted, like, damn, you know, like, you got robbed, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, yeah. and and I, what is your, what is your, like, feeling about that sort of thing? Like, what is your feeling of sort of ownership of a story like that, or... or? I mean, the one, the just, okay, so the woman kills... It opens fire in a staff meeting, kills three people, injures, savagely injures, I think, three more. Um, and the murders happen. And I went in while she was going to trial. Yeah. And I I was closer to the event than he was. Um, and so the big get that he got that I didn't get was talking to the parents. Because it, had been, it yes. had been a long time. So. And, and I think also 
it probably didn't hurt that he was coming from a New Yorker, you know. I mean, I think there's a there are certain places that people I don't know I don't know whether this had a, an impact on them, but there are certain places that definitely where when you say you're coming from there, people are well this this we're going to talk to anyone it's going to be this place. Um, but either way, I tried to talk to them. They were not ready to talk, and I reached out. I had email addresses. I tried, and I didn't get them. And he did, and that was really interesting. I mean, you know, none of these stories are ours. <laughs> They're somebody else's. Now, we can do our great job, if hopefully, um, explaining them um, or, you know, delving into them. Um, it's hard to watch one of your stories be told again. <laughs> Um, but, but, um, and, and I definitely exchanged some emails with my editor at Wired <laughs> that day <laughs> when the New Yorker came out with their story. Um, but at the same time, you know, we'd had our moment with that story and we had the, our, the thing we were proudest of was that I got all of the copies of her novels that were unpublished. And so you got kind of a glimpse into her psyche to the extent we could deduce things from those novels because um, some of them were very violent and some of them were talked about depression. And so, so we'd had our, our moment with the story and then I, I don't think that that means that no one else can ever write about it again. Um, but, you know, it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. <laughs> it can be hard to watch. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting as a reader because, you know, you can sort of see, you can almost like see a way into the process a little bit because uh -huh. you can look at the first story and say, I can see why they put the story out then. You know, that was as much as you were going to get. Yes. And you could sit on it for a long time, but it was time to tell that story. And you could also see why someone sitting at the New Yorker said, well, now it's been longer. Maybe yes. we can get something else. And as a reader, you kind of want the two of you to get together and like <laughs> well, write and something I would, together. I would welcome that. <laughs> I would. I mean, I've been the beneficiary of that same thing in a much different way. But there was a great, great spin story about D'Angelo, the soul singer, about his fall from grace. Oh, yeah. And um, it was just a great piece of journalism. But that writer never got D'Angelo because D'Angelo was off the grid he wasn't talking to anybody so when i heard th that um d'angelo was going on tour this is now 18 months ago maybe two years ago after 13 years outside you know the, the next marvin Gaye, the greatest soul singer ever had fallen off the side of the world for 13 years nobody people knew where he was but he wasn't seen in public and he didn't perform and when I heard he was going on tour in Europe to kind of warm up to get for his comeback, I immediately emailed Jim Nelson at GQ, who's a huge music fan, and I said, please send me, please, 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 please send me, you know. And so I ended up going on tour with D'Angelo and um, ended up getting the interview. Was the comeback. And I heard from the, the writer at Spin oh, really? afterwards. And, you know, he was like, I mean, I'm sure it was really hard I'm for him. Sure I mean, he I'm, was saying, of course it was I hard did for that him story. to read it. Well, not just I did that story, but I wanted that interview, yeah. you know. And and I totally understood. I mean, he didn't say that to me. Yeah, he was yeah. nothing but gracious. He was totally gracious. Um, but so, you know, so you're in the right place at the right time or you, you get lucky or 
you know, and, and in that moment, that was another D'Angelo story. Like, they're both good. They're just di at different moments, you yeah. know. But I, but I heard from the guy, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I totally, you know, I, I was so appreciative that he was so, you know, he was so laudatory of the story. And I was like, your story was so great. It helped me so much. Because it did. I mean, I went to people that he had quoted in his story and interviewed them because I knew to interview them from his story. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. There, there was like he had gone inside this moment which i wouldn't have known about as much if he hadn't done that so i guess we're all building on each other's work to a certain degree <laughs> yeah and you're right ultimately uh that's d'angelo's story it's actually not well that's not, i mean it's not anyone's story it's something it's i'm his, thinking so. about a lot actually when i think about you know i've co-written a book now and will i write my own book but i'd like to do that i think i would but what do i want to do it about and what i tend to write stories about often are I get people to tell me about their lives and but those are their stories those are not that's not my but, but you know so unless I'm going to write a memoir <laughs> I'm going to be asking people to tell me their stories and I'm thinking a lot about that you know that that's it's one thing if you write a big idea book that's like my idea is x and I'm going to go out and talk to 12 people mm -hmm. about that but but the stories I tend to write at least at the moment are more taking you inside somebody's world and so i'm i'm just i'm sort of pondering what that means for book writing mm -hmm. you know? um, well i want you to keep doing it for one so <laughs> well thank you don't change thank you. um thanks so much for coming to new york to do this it wasn't why you came to new york I but I, the minute you asked me i flew here <laughs> but thanks for coming in here and uh it's been really fun so thank you um, we'll have it. you back again maybe uh after that book comes out or that'd be great maybe when your book comes out Ooh, the one i haven't decided on yeah, yet that's no problem you, you don't need you need another job it I sounds like i don't need an excuse to come in here i'll <laughs> talk to you for another hour all right thanks so much thank you Thanks for listening to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff. I was the host this week. I was talking to Amy Wallace, who was really gracious to come into the studio in New York and really fun to talk to. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Erin Lammer from longform.org. Our wonderful editor is Lauren Kirchner. Our intern is Gavin Jenkins. And our sponsors were Warby Parker and Tiny Letter. Thanks to both of them. And check us out next week. We really appreciate your listenership.